Welcome to 12 Scholars, a brand new podcast dedicated to personal development. In this first series, we meet 12 inspiring people, all with a bias for being proactive. To learn more about personal development and how you can take your performance to the next level, visit our website and click the button to subscribe. In this week's show, we meet Natalie Yates-Bolton. Natalie is a senior lecturer at the University of Salford and a founder member of the Salford Institute for Dementia. And there's a phrase like pyjama-induced paralysis. I didn't have the option of putting on my pyjamas and taking it easy for six months. The best version of who I am today is no good tomorrow. I need to respond to tomorrow, tomorrow. So that's when I watch Neighbours. So that's my guilty <laughs> secret. Uh, that was such a secret. I think I've become the Forrest Gump of hat making. Natalie is a specialist in nursing and caring for the elderly. But whilst teaching young nurses and caring for others, she is currently receiving treatment for cancer herself. This is her fifth cancer diagnosis since the age of 19. Her story is one of courage, grace and exceptional bravery. Despite the obvious health setbacks, she's not let it interfere with her life and has gone on to tackle some amazing physical and mental challenges. Natalie is absolutely determined to live her life with meaning and purpose and proof that when you might not have much time, it really matters what you do. Today, we visit Natalie and her two dogs to find out more about her story and what keeps her going. Welcome, Natalie, to 12 Scholars. Thank you. On a scale of one to 10, how proactive would you say others think you are? I think they would probably think 10, but that's not me blowing my own trumpet. That's me listening to what other people say. My daughter, interestingly, posted something on Facebook about me this week saying how proactive I was and skiing and running. And But she also then told the truth and said what people don't see is that there are times when I'm tired. So I know I'm probably nine out of 10 in terms of being proactive, but what everybody else sees is probably 10 out of 10. And in terms of personal development and staying proactive, how important that's been to your career and personal life? It's been unexpected. I think given half a chance, I would be a couch potato and quite lazy. But life circumstances have meant that really is an option I haven't followed. And it is really, really important for me to be proactive. And it's only when I'm put in a challenging situation that I realise how key, core and essential it is to me to be proactive, especially when it's a difficult situation. And those situations, are those key skills that you've learned over the years now about yeah. how to handle those setbacks, how to handle those, those challenges? Yeah, so I think one unusual aspect of my story is the cancer five times. I think that's probably what makes my story a little bit different. And each time I thought, like the first time I thought was going to be the only time. And so I learned from that and I thought those would be enough lessons for me for life. And then when I had the second occasion of cancer, that was a surprise and it was interesting to learn more lessons. So that's not to detract from the experience of cancer and people who are going through, you know, quite tough chemotherapy where you're sick and you're having surgery and you're tired and you have to change the way you live your life. I'm not detracting from the challenge of it, but also within that challenge is the opportunity to learn new things about yourself, other people, about the world. I think my message is out of adversity comes strength and you can choose to use those really difficult life situations to find your strength and to keep that strength going. If we go back to your earliest kind of setback or your earliest challenge, mm. uh, would you say it was that first diagnosis or was there anything prior to that? 
Um, no, really that, that first diagnosis. I mean, parents divorcing, that was like unexpected. And maybe I had a bit of a practice there about how your life might be different to other people's and to your very close friends. And maybe as a family, we quickly readjusted. So for, for, the, for the listeners out there, that's, um, that'd be um, Bondi yes. and Boston. Yeah. yeah, so I think as a family, we became, instead of a four or three, we became a very strong triangle. And so that lesson taught me lots for life. So yeah, I had had a practice there, but then that was the family, whereas the first diagnosis of cancer was just me and me finding that solution. I, again, supported very much by family and friends. Everything I've ever done is very much supported by family and friends. So when people think, oh, you'd score 10, 10 out of 10 for being proactive that isn't just me it's not just my strength it's absolutely the family and friends who are 100% supporting me and when you look back you were 19 at that first that first diagnosis that's that's pretty young that's very young yeah. and quite quite extraordinary yeah. for a lady in yeah. her youth in her yeah. prime so i was at university with friends life is pretty blissful at university or that was my experience of it and again it's just that unexpectedness so i read something in a, a book about cancer care years and years later that kind of summed it up and it kind of said when you get that diagnosis it isn't a story it's shards of glass it's splintering wood it isn't a story it's that like shipwrecked experience and it's only later that through telling your story that actually becomes a story and that's I didn't read that till years later I thought yeah that's what it is it's that ship being shipwrecked you, you know I was at university had amazing friends on a fabulous course and then this diagnosis and it was like being shipwrecked and chaos and a storm that you suddenly find yourself in and how do you orientate yourself to that because as a young university student I didn't expect that none of my friends had that experience I had no frame of reference so that's why it was like a shipwreck no no point of reference I had to find those so it talks about your studies then were you able to then finish university if somebody had told me in a year's time this is going to happen, you'd come up with a plan. But when it's just sudden and you have to instantly make a decision, I was 250 miles away from home in Guildford and had the option of coming back to Manchester to the Christie Hospital, which is obviously world class and being looked after by my mum, or staying in Guildford with the choice of two hospitals, the Royal Marsden, again, world class, or to go to the little almost cottage hospital on the other side of Guildford that's actually now been knocked down. But if I did the little cottage hospital version of cancer treatment, then I could carry on with my course. And that was the decision I made. I am academic, I love to think, I like to overthink, but I also am an emotional person and when it comes to head or heart, it will always be heart that if I'm not sure, I'll go with my heart. So that was the decision. I knew I wanted to stay in Guildford, knew I wanted to graduate with my friends a couple of years later and the only way to do that was to stay in Guildford, to stay doing my student nurse placements on the wards because the NMC say you have to do so many hours, um, it's not negotiable no matter what health issue you're going through. So that set me in a really good pattern that regardless of what happens, you've got obligations. There's certain obligations you have to fulfill. And there's a phrase like pyjama induced paralysis. I didn't have the option of putting on my pyjamas and taking it easy for six months 
because if I had done that, I would have had to start the university programme a year later and I wouldn't have graduated with my friends. So the pyjamas didn't go on. The student nurse uniform went on and every day I went to placement and then at the end of every shift, I got on the little bus, went to the opposite side of town, had my radiotherapy, didn't even have time to get changed into normal clothes. So that might have confused the other patients that there was this nurse sat there as well who then went in for treatment, came back to the nurse's accommodation, have an hour's rest and then carry on as normal. If we fast forward a number of years then, you're now a senior lecturer at the uh, University of Salford. Yeah. Specialising in patient care, dementia care, cancer care. And you've got this remarkable experience now of these life, you know, life changing experiences where you've been on the other side. Yeah. So you can talk right from the heart. Yeah. So I do. So I do share with my students my patient experience because I think you know, they'll see me sit at the front and think, oh, well, she's just teaching from textbooks and academic papers. What does she know? And they know I've been a nurse. Um, but I think when I also then add my patient experience in, I think it probably makes me feel more or appear more authentic or to be more authentic that it isn't just the nurse's perspective. It's the patient perspective. Talk to you a little bit about the Florence Nightingale Scholarship. So what, what does that mean then? Yeah, so when I was at university, one of my really close friends was funded by the Florence Nightingale Foundation to go to India as a student nurse. And she came back very much changed by the experience. But for me at that time, that wasn't my calling to go and do something like that. But I kind of filed that information away. And as a mum looking after my family, I didn't really want to go away for long periods of time. But as the girls got older, I still had that piece of information in my mind. There was that opportunity. And I wanted to use that opportunity when it was for maximum impact. So when this dementia passion was evoked and I couldn't really study it for my PhD because I was already too far on, I thought, ah, this is the moment to use that Florence Nightingale ticket, except it's not so simple. You have to apply. Nurses all over the country in the Commonwealth are applying. You have to go to London for a really intense interview with directors of nursing from all over the country. But I was really fortunate and, and won that scholarship, well, one of them, and went to the US to study with a guy called John Zeisel, who then was instrumental in setting up the Salford Institute for Dementia. So a guy whose work I admired, I then got the opportunity to work with him. And I remember like Google stalking him and seeing a picture of him at some in some professional like after dinner uh, setting with these people. I thought, oh, how lucky are they? They like know him and they're obviously quite friendly. And now John and I are really good friends. He stays here and we're always in touch. So I, it's just amazing those opportunities. If you use them at the right time, the impact for others and for yourself can be really incredible. One of the things I'm really interested in, Natalie, is about the choices you've made throughout your professional life and personal life as well. Perhaps you could talk to us about some of the choices that you've made or sacrifices throughout your life. So I don't like to think of my story as a cancer story, but unfortunately, those are the key unusual events that punctuate my story. Um, But hopefully my response to them means that my story isn't just a cancer story, but those are just like chapters. Um, So I think my choices and decisions have usually been like cancer related. So the first time was to choose to stay at university and have care in this little cottage hospital. 
But then when I finished my university degree, I then decided to go to Australia because my uh, best friend was out there. Um, and maybe I wouldn't have been as quite as reactive. Maybe I would have thought, oh, well, let's work for a year in the UK before you go to Australia. But I waited three months. I worked in London for three months on qualifying. And then my friend was out there. I'm going. Um, so again, that's that head or heart. Head would say, stay in London, get a few years under your belt and then go to Australia. But my heart said, no, let's go. So I was off um, and then later on when I was 36 and the Hodgkin's lymphoma came back I was mum to India and stepmum to Lucy and you know I had to decide quickly do I carry on working or do I take the time off and with advice from my mum I've prioritised being mum to my girls and that was definitely the right thing to do and then as that treatment finished I did a quick way up of my life and I thought is there if, it, if the cancer comes back again but not thinking it would but just hypothetically have I done everything I need to do and the one thing I hadn't done was go skiing so booked a skiing holiday and I think we've had 15 ski holidays since and now I'm a bit of an addict come September I start smelling the snow and it's ridiculous I'm like driving along and once I can smell the snow that's it I have to like book my flight so at the holiday and uh, off we go. So in terms of keeping busy then it's not just the ski slopes but you've developed a passion now for running yeah. and, and for triathlons. Yeah so the running that came from India really so my youngest daughter I watched her run on the school field and I thought oh gosh I don't know if I could do that so I think I'd just finished some cancer treatment and I asked her if she would kind of be my, my running coach so she got me running and then a year later did race for life and then that time just carried on like Forrest Gump really and joined a great running club met some great friends and we just all inspire and encourage each other to the fact that we all did the ultra marathon last year which was just amazing and which ultra marathon did you do so it's called race to the stones which is uh kind of an organised event by Threshold. And my friend sent me the clip. I'd just started my new chemo for like chemo treatment five. And my friend sent us all this link to say, look at this fabulous event. And it had like really inspirational music. And I watched it and I thought I would love to do that. It showed people running through this, these fields of corn and running at night. And I said, oh, I'd, I messaged back. I'd love to do that. But, you know, I'm, I was actually lying down. I think I had my pyjamas on. Oh, I'm just a bit tired. I don't think I can do that. I'm on this like chemo course for two years. There's no way I've got the energy to run 30 miles on the Saturday, sleep in a tent and then do another 30 miles on the Sunday. But then I went to watch, well, listen to a talk by a friend from the running club who'd done the Coast to Coast ultramarathon. And he said how he ran the first 90 and walked like, a lot of the next 120 I thought well I can do that not quite that far but I thought actually this two-day event if I can walk what I like I don't know why I didn't think that before um, I think because in marathons you normally run and hardly walk I thought I oh, know I can do it so with my friends we trained together and we did it and it was just such an amazing incredible event up until the race to the stones what was the furthest you'd run before a marathon so i'd like done the six marathons and really enjoyed those but felt you know i do have to make decisions you talk about sacrifice i do have to be sensible and the you know chemo has affected my heart and, and my lungs so i do have to be careful and i thought if i'm on a two-year chemo program now even though it's more like chemo light um you know i do need to way up decisions it has to be like a really sensible health decision and i felt to run a marathon wasn't a sensible health decision on this two-year chemo program but i thought well i can do as much walking as i like even though it's more than two marathons back to back the health 
I, I justified it, the health decision, the health risk. And with the six marathons that you've run and the Race to Stones, this ultra marathon, yeah. what do you think you've learned about yourself in terms of you know, your head and your heart yeah. and, and what else you can achieve with life? Yeah, I think I've learned you don't have to be the fastest. So I have to accept with my slightly impaired cardiac function and respiratory function like hills are a problem so we're hoping to have a little run later aren't we you'll see that in action that you know we'll get to a hill and i'll say i'm really sorry i'm just gonna have to walk this and there's no point me enduring a run i absolutely love running i absolutely enjoy it and my friends know if i get to a hill i'm pretty much gonna i can start it but i'm gonna have to have to walk it and you know people need to learn you don't need to be the shiniest and the fastest but it's a do you absolutely enjoy what you're doing? So in everything in my life, if I don't love it, I don't do it. If I like it, that's not good enough. In my work, I have to like love teaching. I have to love supervising my students. I have to love the international aspects of my role. If I like it, that's not good enough. If I like it, something's wrong. And other people might think, oh, well, I like my job and I like my hobbies. No, not good enough. I think for me, I've just got this drive to be the best version of me. I wouldn't particularly call it personal development, but that's, that's what it is, isn't it? But in my mind, I don't think, oh, well, I'm going to do some personal development today. I just have this drive every day from the moment I open the curtains to when I close them just to be the best version of myself. But you can't do that just by yourself. You need other people. And that's why I think it's just really important. If you see somebody successful, look around them and see who is their support team because I've just got a really strong support team. So my, I could be the best version of who I am because of all the support that I get. It's not me just doing it all by myself. So in terms of whether it's my running or being a good friend, being a good mum, being a good lecturer, it's all the same. I always want, every day, I want to be the best version of myself. And I never think, oh, well, today I'll just do a 50% version. And then the day after, I'll go back to 100%. I just have that drive to always be the best version of myself and keep learning new ways because the best version of who I am today is no good tomorrow. I need to respond to tomorrow, tomorrow, and that'll be a different version of myself. And, and nice one of the, the, the new skills and passions that you've developed was all around Ascot. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's Ascot this week, this isn't week, it? This week, yes. Yeah. So a year ago, I went to Ascot. So my first day at a race, the first time at a racing event. And my best uh, friend asked me. And what me, a place to go for your I first know. time. So my friend asked me, did I want to go? And I thought, well, I'm not, that in, not really interested in horse racing, but I like fashion. So I went, yeah, OK, I'll go because that new opportunity. I always like to say yes to new opportunities. And we went on the Northern Bell train. So it was like just an amazing day. And I just thought, oh, I might learn to make my hat rather than just buy one. And a bit like the running, I think I've become the Forrest Gump of hat making. I've ended up setting up a little business called Hatterley, a little online shop. I've made hats for friends and family. I get referrals from friends and family. I sell to strangers. So I've sent one hat to France recently. So that was incredible you know the French are so stylish and for a stranger in France to choose one of my fascinators oh yeah I was rather delighted so yeah I do I have to try and not read hat magazines at bedtime otherwise I'm just like thinking hats I have all these hats swirling around in my head and I'm not creative that I can make cakes and, and now I've found out I can make hats but other than that like don't ask me to draw anything 
And what sort of attention did you get when you went to Ascot with your, oh, with your hat? Yeah, so the, I had some private lessons and every time that my millinery teacher taught me a technique, I'd like just make it really big and say, oh, I see we're going large. So my hat was very large. Not ridiculous, but it was quite a statement hat. And really, every 20 minutes, people were stopping me to say like they loved my hat and uh, ended up on the front of the Manchester Evening News, or at least on the online uh, version, even before I got to Ascot. So on the train on the way down, one of the other passengers, uh, as I walked down, said, oh, you do know you're on the Manchester Evening News site. And a picture had been taken at the station in the morning, like half past six. So, uh, yeah, it was a great day. Oh, fabulous. Final few questions, if we may, Natalie. Yeah. What would you say is the most productive time of day? So that's changed. And I think that's an important lesson that I love a to-do list. I love a timetable. I love a framework. That, unfortunately, only works for the day that you've written that timetable or have that framework. So for me, working late in the evening used to be my most creative time. So when um, India had gone to bed, that's when I would carry on my working life and would be very productive, say, from eight till midnight in addition to like a full day of work but now that no way is that going to happen I can only really do my working day during the day and actually the morning is my best time so my brain is much sharper because the chemo I'm on now does take away some of my energy so by evening time there's there's no point in me even trying to work so it's about having that flexibility and having a framework for that day or that period of life but being aware that you don't stick to what you've always done you need to be really aware and responsive to who you are at that moment in time. So what would you say is your least proactive time of yeah, day then? Yeah, so it's flipped. So now after six, seven o'clock, I'm not very productive. Yeah. So that's when I watch Neighbours. So that's my guilty <laughs> secret. Uh, not it's a secret. And out of all the academics I've met at my university and other places, nobody else watches Neighbours. But for me, I come home, I put Neighbours on and it's just like perfect relaxation for 25 minutes. That, that's your happy place. It is, I love it. Yeah. I watch it religiously. How would you overcome procrastination? Yeah, so I, that's not a word for me. I don't, I don't procrastinate because I've had to make really quick life impactful decisions. When do you want your treatment? Where are you going to have your treatment? Are you going to have your treatment? I've had to make really big decisions really quickly. So anything less than to do with life or death, I don't procrastinate. And because I, I know I'll weigh things up from my head and I'll think about it from my heart and then that heart decision. And that, that takes minutes, so I don't procrastinate. Never yeah, have. Interesting. Yeah. I, I could learn a few things yeah, from you there. It's like, like, I don't even need that word in the dictionary because yeah. I do not procrastinate. Yeah. So Natalie, thank you very much for being with us on 12 Scholars and we wish you all success in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Same to you. That was Natalie Yates-Bolton, one of those people who lights the room and is an inspiration to us all. In this episode, we learn more about being proactive and how you can choose to stay active no matter what life throws at you. Natalie's advice is to surround yourself with friends and family that will support you. As you inspire them, they'll inspire you. Avoid pyjama-induced paralysis by being the best version of yourself. Seize opportunities when they present themselves, such as race to the stones run by threshold. You're never too young or too old to learn new skills and start a business. 
and it's okay to have a guilty pleasure, even if it is watching Neighbours. To learn more about Natalie and meet other inspiring people, visit our website at 12scholars.com and join a tribe dedicated to personal development. That was a 12 Scholars podcast. If you liked the episode, be sure to tell one of your friends. My name is Bob, and I look forward to joining you next time.